And a special thing about this podcast too is that um, it's a safe space to criticize me and even be mean to me if you're so inclined. So if there are stark disagreements, we can air them here. <laughs> that, okay. That's actually, it's, that's the purpose of this podcast for me in particular, because I've been friends with Shadi in a while, but there's no really safe space to do it except on here is to just sort of give him the business. But it's funny that um, the way that I know Emma, I don't actually know Emma in real life, mostly just on Twitter, which I guess is how I know a lot of people. And um, I guess we've gotten in some, I don't want to call them Twitter fights because they've always been respectful and, you know, kind of friendly, but there definitely have been points of disagreement where I think we've gone back and forth, certainly during the Syria intervention debates. That's been, I think, one of the main flashpoints. But the reason, but because I, I haven't actually met you in real life, and this is the first time I'm hearing your voice, I am, so, I, I guess I'm a little bit caught off guard that you appear to be, I, I don't want to get this wrong. Are you, I think it's somewhere in the United King, UK. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. I, I am Scottish. I was born and raised in Glasgow, but I, I've been in America so long. The accent is almost all gone. Okay. That was a close call. I was, I was close to saying British, but I thought maybe I'm getting it wrong and it's Irish or Scottish. So that was a real good save on my yeah. part. At the good, very, job, yeah. good job. Good job. <laughs> Anyway, uh, uh, now now that we're we, we're already rolling, uh, and and so the mysterious person on the other line is Emma Ashford, uh, who is resident senior fellow at uh, the Atlantic Council uh, with the New American Engagement Initiative, which is a, a new thing at the Atlantic Council. Uh, when did that start, Emma? I mean, it was about in the last year, I think. Yeah. So um, you know, as a whole division, we've only been running about two months, perhaps. I came on board about four months ago. And I think the whole thing only got stood up, you know, middle of last year. So we're very new. Um, we're a five person unit. Um, and we have a really interesting mandate, which is to question the assumptions that underlie US foreign policy today. So it's, it's a really awesome mission, because it means that we basically get to look at US foreign policy, look at the world, look at all the problems out there and try and figure out what we can do better about them. And, and I think as a, you know, broad mission to have, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the the cool things at the Atlantic Council that that uh, I you know it's, it's such a broad tent and it, it brings in uh, all sorts of uh, different perspectives and I I just I really like working there myself. Um, you know I, the the reason I you know I first texted Shadi is like you know I'd, I'd love to have Emma on. Um, you tweeted it was something. Uh, I, I, an editorial maybe in the Washington Post about a week ago, and it was it was basically saying, you know, the war is lost in Afghanistan, and yet we need to stay. Uh, and I, you, you tweeted something, you know, oh, to have the intellectual clarity of the Washington Post editorial board. And, you know, I mean, the reason I, I wanted in particular to have you on is because Shadi and I, uh, in general, on foreign policy stuff, we end up disagreeing a fair bit. But we're still part of one of the, the subtexts of this podcast is, I think, figuring that out. I don't know why. We can't quite put our finger I mean, on it. I do know why. I mean, it, for me, it has to do with sort of, I think, the, the problem of democracy promotion. And, you know, the, the, the question of Afghanistan, I think, has always been one on my mind as a, a uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that on that point. You know, I mean, it seems to me like the mission has been mystified from, from the beginning, uh, maybe not the very beginning when it was, you know, a, an intervention against Osama bin Laden, but quickly it ballooned into, into something else. And it's emblematic, I think, of a certain kind of problem. But the other reason I wanted to, to have you on, and I mean, you know, Shadi and I did a, a clubhouse, uh, an attempt at a clubhouse event to try and talk through this. Uh, it's because I, I, while I've always felt, 
you know, generally um, sympathetic to the realist critique of American foreign policy. I also find that like realism itself falls short for me somehow. So that's just another thing that I just, you know, uh, I use it fair to, 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 would you, would you characterize yourself as a realist in foreign policy or at least having those kind of inclinations or, I mean, I know it's a broad term, so I, I don't know, just say a few things about how you, how you even think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly define myself as a realist. Um, the problem, as, as you sort of allude to there, is that you can define a lot of different things as realist. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who define themselves as realists that I wouldn't necessarily consider that. So Bob Kagan, for example, is one who frequently talks about himself as a realist and about reclaiming realism. Um, but, you know, if you actually went off into to academia and you talked to the people that wrote the classics of realist theory, they'd say he's definitely not a realist. So there's a lot of disagreement about what it means. Some people basically use it to mean like, I am realistic about the world. And some people are very strict about IR theory. So there's this huge range, you know, for myself, I use it to try and differentiate myself from there's there's a whole group of people in Washington um, that have become sort of known as people that believe in restraint in foreign policy. And, and that's a grand strategy. Um, and I generally agree with them, but I don't go quite as far. And so I like realist as a way to slightly differentiate myself on that question. Hmm. I, I mean, I, that's, that's, that's really, I think, gets at the heart of some of the things I want to talk about. I mean, part of, of, of uh, the... So Shadi, I mean, you're working on a book about, broadly, is it fair to say about democracy promotion? Is that yeah. the... Is that the, the uh, the goal of it. And um, and yet, you know, I mean, just in passing in conversations we've had on this podcast, and actually we haven't discussed it off the podcast is is is, uh, you know, the special case of Afghanistan as a as a as a, an attempt that I think an ambitious attempt attempt at state building that didn't start out that way, but ended up that way and seems to be cratering in a pretty bad way, uh, you know. Um, but I also then Emma, I want to talk to you about the concept of restraint and how that um, uh, basically shapes uh, whether whether it's 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 you know just a critique or whether it's actually a grand strategy, as you put it. So I don't know. Let's maybe talk about Afghanistan first because I think that's a, a good jumping off point. Um, I, I I don't know, Emma. Do you, why don't you? Tell us a little bit about your sort of general view. I mean, we're we're at an inflection point. I mean, I think that's why there's been a, a a flowering of really interesting essays online in the last few months because Biden's here, because Biden has positioned himself as you know um, standing for certain things. Uh, in many ways, it's a restoration of a certain kind of Obaman approach. But at the same time, I would argue Obama was sort of like maybe the closest we'll ever have to a realist president, at least temperamentally. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure that, that, you know, it's not exactly what Biden's doing. You wrote an article, I think, in, in August in the New York Times talking about, you know, trying, he wants to return America to something that's not really returnable to. So I don't know, why don't you, you tell us a little bit about, you know, what do you think about is likely to happen in the, about Afghanistan in the, um, uh, you know, in the, in the very immediate future here? And then I, I do want to hear about shoddy and, you know, democracy promotion in Afghanistan, because I think that's just interesting. So yeah, so uh, you're right that I, I tweeted something snide and sarcastic about the Washington Post editorial board a few weeks ago. I'm afraid on Twitter you should probably, much like Donald Trump, take take me seriously. Maybe don't take me literally because I, I have a tendency to get snide. Um, but what was so frustrating about that op-ed was um, it basically made, or I guess it was an editorial, it made all the right points about um, what things look like on the ground in Afghanistan. 
um, that the war is effectively lost, that there is no chance that the country is going to turn into, you know, never mind a democratic paradise, there's really no chance the country is going to turn into a stable, sovereign state with a single government anytime soon. There's going to be this insurgency for quite some time. And the editorial got all those facts right. And then it turned around and basically said, well, we should be fighting in Afghanistan anyway. And there wasn't really a good rationale for that. You know, there was a lot of hand waving, um, a fair amount of sunk cost fallacy. You know, we've put in this much effort in Afghanistan. We can't stop now. Um, some stuff about our obligations in Afghanistan. And there's just not a good argument for staying. The, the, the most coherent argument that I have heard for why we should stay in Afghanistan is at this point that it's a relatively cheap, sustainable mission by by which people mean when they when they support that kind of thing they mean well it only costs us you know billion or so dollars a year it only costs us 10 to 20 lives a year and that's sustainable and and i think that's uh i think that's a very problematic argument um i i think it's just punting um because we don't want to make a difficult decision. Um, and I think if you go back, and here's where we sort of get to the you know Obama, then Trump, then Biden part of it. If you go back, you can see these arguments popping up basically as early as the Obama administration. You know, we had the surge, it was moderately successful, but when we started to draw down, the problems started to creep back. The Afghan government wasn't particularly good at picking up the slack. Um, but there was this sort of feeling that if we just stayed in a few more years, maybe we could make it work. And, and what's happened since then is basically we've had, you know, six or so more years of exactly the same um, to the point where I feel that what Trump is offering to the Biden administration is effectively this gift that he has set them up that they can withdraw from Afghanistan. It will largely not be perceived as their fault um, and that the time is basically right for them to take that opportunity. Shadi, you've been ambivalent about Afghanistan and democracy promotion. Is that wrong? Um, yeah, uh, no. No? Well, okay, I, but look, I'll, I'll go on. Do, I... do what you want. <laughs> I just want to lay down a couple a couple markers in this conversation, and I'd be curious to hear what Emma thinks. So, Emma, you self-define as a realist. It's harder for me to self-define as something because I'm a little bit weird. And I would say that in some ways I'm ideologically heterodox and perhaps even homeless when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. So on one hand, I supported uh, Bernie Sanders in the primary I've been a fan of Matt Duss, Bernie Sanders' chief foreign policy advisor, um, even though those are people who are more closely tied, let's say, to where you might be, Emma, the kind of um, skeptical of the uses of American power, more enthusiastic about restraint, so on and so forth, where I di diverge from Bernie. And this is why I think people have been like, wait, Shadi. Why do you support Bernie again? You're like the most hawkish person imaginable on like X, Y, and Z issues. And there is a little bit of a tension. But let me try to unpack that tension because that might help clarify some of the terms of debate. Um, I mean, what I what I liked about Bernie is the willingness to question the assumptions of U.S. foreign policy. And that's where I think you and I, Emma, were on the same page. And that's why I would like more people who are against the grain to be in the State Department, in, in the U.S. government, because I don't think the way we've done things has been effective. I look at a record of failure. But the difference, I think, is I look at a record of failure 
coming from people like Barack Obama, who I would say, and I agree with Demir on this, is the closest we've had to a realist, a real realist president. And I look at his realism and I see failure, I see destruction, and I see a lack, I mean, a basic lack of competence, particularly in the region that I focus on, which is in the Middle East. So, um, you know, I don't know where that really leaves me. I think that I would just say that I believe in restraint in terms of long-term military adventures. And that's why I'm not, to go to your question, Demir, I'm not enthusiastic about Afghanistan. I haven't been for some time. I don't like, um, I don't like overambitious projects abroad that rely on the use of force over long periods of time. And that's why I would have preferred that in the late 2000s or early 2010s, when we were in a stronger position in Afghanistan, if we're negotiating from a position position of strength, to that's that would have been the right time to look for some kind of peace deal with the Taliban. I don't believe there's any potential future for Afghanistan where where the Taliban is not part of some kind of peace process. They they're not super popular, but they do represent at least a significant minority of the population. And one thing that I've always believed in when we're talking about the Middle East or South and Southeast Asia, that even if you have really bad groups, oftentimes these are Islamist groups, even if you would like to get rid of them in theory, you can't get rid of them in practice. So this would apply, for example, to Hamas in Palestine. Hamas is a designated terrorist organization from the U.S. standpoint, and that's that's fine. But there is no long-term peace that doesn't grapple with the role that Hamas plays in Palestinian politics. And maybe that's, you know, there's something realistic about that. So I would just say, so, I, so I'm... I worry sometimes that the debate around Iraq and Afghanistan has tarred the otherwise good name of democracy promotion. There's a way to be skeptical of endless wars. There's a way to be skeptical of the war on terror specifically and the terrible legacy that that's left while also still maintaining a very, I would say, more idealistic perspective on democracy promotion where we, and I count myself as a progressive on the left side of the spectrum, that if you know, if we're part of Team Bernie, for example, I don't know how you can be part of Team Bernie and not believe in a progressive foreign policy where we aggressively promote democracy in certain ways, not through coercion. Well, in some ways, it could be coercive if we use, let's say, aid conditionality or we suspend weapon sales to Egypt or Saudi Arabia. Those are ways that we reflect our ideals abroad. But we use the levers of policy to get to that end point, but we're not exactly going about waging war. I know I put a lot there, but I just wanted to like get offer a better sense of where I'm coming from on some of these issues. Emma, uh, you know, maybe just to 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 sharpen it. Um, one of the things that 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 always uh, strikes me, actually, and it, it's I mean, it's between me and Shadi to a certain extent, though I think. What he last said complicates it a bit, um, but I think it's also call it a a kind of of uh, sensibility. I think among again very broadly without pigeonholing anyone, the, very broadly about the sort of realist pose is is about a certain kind of optimism versus a certain kind of pessimism, which is why I end up feeling more at home with realists, and I think why Shadi himself doesn't feel at home with realists. I don't know. So if you react to anything Shadi said and, and you know, just throwing that in as a as a as another sort of goad, I guess. 
I think the pessimist point is is a fair one about realists. Um, you know, but I would I would also make the argument that realists have much more of a tendency um, to use what what Hans Morgenthau called strategic empathy, um, and and this has been this term has been popularized recently by H. R. McMaster, who I would argue is is not a realist and uses the term somewhat wrongly. But what what Morgenthau meant by it was the idea that you try and see where others are coming from. Right. So if we look at Iran or we look at the Taliban, we, we try and see what it is that they are trying to achieve. You know, what are they afraid of? What is it they want out of this? Um, and I think that that's something that U.S. foreign policy has done very, very badly at in recent years is understanding others and where they fit into this this world. And I think that's a pretty natural hangover from the, the sort of unipolar moment to the end of the Cold War, where America was just so powerful, we didn't really have to care what anyone else thought. Um, but I think we've, to some extent, we've sort of lost that ability to, to perceive the rest of the world. Um, but in terms of, of sort of Shadi's comments and, and where he fits, um, you know, I mean, first, I guess I would say, uh, you know, the classic point, Obama wasn't a realist. Um, I, I agree with you that certainly among recent presidents, he's about as realist as we've had. Um, and I think there are certain areas where you can see realist thinking informing his foreign policy. I think the JCPOA um, and, and Obama's willingness to sort of use a combination of sanctions, pressure and negotiations and, you know, actually giving some concessions and, you know, to create this nuclear deal. I think that is actually a case where he, he took a very realist approach to the world as most sort of academic realists um, would define it. But there's lots of other cases where Obama um, resisted those those instincts. And, and I think it is that his personal instincts were more realist. Um, and he was generally persuaded by advisors to, to do other things, you know, whether whether it was the surge in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, the intervention in Libya, right, that ended up being so disastrous. Um, and so, you know, Obama... I would say occasionally pursued a realist foreign policy, but it wasn't particularly coherent. And he was very much handicapped by not having uh, a staff that agreed with him on a lot of those issues. And I think that's one area where, you know, Shadi, you bring up Bernie Sanders. I think that's one area where Sanders has actually done a lot better in the last few years. He's got in some really professional advisors, people who are able to think through some of these issues, come up with actual practical responses. Um, and it means that he has a foreign policy that's a lot more coherent. Um, whereas I think Obama's foreign policy, at least during his, his first campaign, started out much more as a slogan and evolved when he was president. Sanders sort of developed something during the campaign that would actually have stood on its own as a foreign policy. I, I just, I, I really do want to bring Libya in because this is one of those things no, that... No, Demir, that, don't goad me into Libya. I need to goad Shadi into this. I mean, this is one of, I mean, I, again, this keeps coming up. Mm. Here, here's the thing. I, so Shadi wrote a piece, while, I don't know how many years ago, two years Two thousand, ago? 2016 in, in Vox, actually. The only time I've ever published a piece in Vox, and oddly enough, it was a defense of the Libya intervention, actually, yeah. which I still stand by to this very day. But it's like a very difficult thing to unpack because I think we're quite far apart on this. Well, I mean, but I think this is this is this is an interesting one. I think this maybe can help us tie us into the next part of the conversation. Um, I think one, you know, pessimistic criticism of Afghanistan. I, 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 I hadn't picked up on this from you before that, that the Taliban are, are, are legitimate Represent, need representation in some kind of putative thing, and, and our policy is wrongheaded because we're trying to deprive them of representation. Um, the, 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 
the the other criticism though of Afghanistan is that which you also alluded to Shadi is that it was it was far too ambitious and I think one of the the interesting critiques that yeah you know, I mean Emma just sort of gestured at as well is that is is well specifically in Libya why Libya is such a, a dog's breakfast at this point is that that um, uh, it's uh, the the even even the the fact is you're right we we haven't actually engaged in state building in Libya. I, I think that's where you would come at this from, right, Shadi? Is like, you know, we haven't tried hard enough to even like make a slightly better situation there. We just like bombed and, and left. Um, but to me, the 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 striking parallel is um, uh, that in fact, where we have tried, it hasn't really worked either. Um, now, again, dispute that if you like, and, and and say what you will. But it's to me, it's it's one of the things is the problem with democracy promotion is. Or even call it. Don't even have to call it something uh, that lofty. Just call it state building. That's a that's a capacity issue that we have a real problem with uh, as Americans. And I think this is you know where where the sort of realist sensibility. I think also I think is a helpful corrective in any case. I think I think we would have to if we were if we wanted to get truly serious about democracy promotion abroad, we would have to retool the policy apparatus and actually develop institutions that are good at supporting democracy abroad. The problem is um, we don't have that infra- infrastructure. And I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of loss of institutional memory when new administrations come in and we sort of revisit the same old dilemmas and same debates. Um, but I would say, too, that I think there's different levels of democracy promotion. I think one that is the more minimalist version, which I think is fine and good. And Bernie emphasized this part of it more, which is less democracy promotion in an active sense and more anti-despotism. And that's where I would like to build a broader consensus. And I'd be curious, Emma, if you'd be on board with this, because the U.S. can't be neutral when it comes to the Middle East and specific Middle Eastern countries, because if we don't do anything in, say, Egypt... That only means we're perpetuating the authoritarian status quo because there is already an aid program that is in place, $1.3 billion of military aid each year. So if someone says to me, Shadi, let's, you know, let's dial it down. Let's not be too involved in the Middle East. Let's not do anything more on Egypt. Then I would say, well, that in effect means that you're continuing doing something which is effectively pro-dictatorship. Will be continuing the same streams of support to one of the most repressive regimes in the world. So you have to make a choice at some point. Are we going to go along with that as we've had for the last several decades? And this is where I think we have to question the so-called bipartisan consensus of standing by our very bad allies. And the very least I think we can do in a case like Egypt that doesn't require a lot of interventionist sentiment is just to say, listen, we're going to suspend military aid or at least a, a significant portion of it. And that could include spare parts, maintenance. It could we effectively ground the Egyptian Air Force if we really wanted to, because they need they need spare parts and maintenance to actually keep um, th- their military going. So that's a very strong point of leverage that we could use if we really wanted to, where we would say, hey, we don't need you to become a democracy overnight. That's not realistic. But at the very least, be a little bit less brutal, be a little bit less repressive if you want to continue receiving U.S. assistance. I mean, what would you say to that, Emma? I I don't mean I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I actually don't know what you would say on that specifically. 
honestly, I'm I'm actually kind of on board with at least some of that. Mm. You know, um, Peter Bynart had a really great article last week um, about how he thinks about morality and foreign policy um, and how he thinks about, I think it was Brett Stevens had this column about the dissidence problem, that we should have a dissidence first foreign policy. And and Peter Bernard made the point that, um, you know, American foreign policy should probably focus on, you know, first do no harm, right? Rather than focusing on trying to get regimes like Russia or, uh, you know, Iran that we don't have a lot of leverage over, rather than getting them to improve human rights, maybe we ought to start talking about, about some of our allies. And Egypt is one, you know, I've done a lot of work on Saudi Arabia. We have a lot of leverage over Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting, I think, to note that just in the last week or two, since the Biden administration came into office and signaled, um, that, that, that we, they were going to be less friendly towards uh, Riyadh, we've actually seen some some improvements in on human rights issues, some dissidents getting released and things like that. So I think there's scope for, um, if not democracy promotion, there's scope for improving human rights um, within those areas that we can, right? Ending support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, for example. The places where um, we are ourselves helping to support injustices overseas, that's the low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, and that's, I think, where we should be starting. Um, then, you know, I started out my career um, as, as a realist. There weren't many places that I could work when I first came to Washington. Um, I actually started my career at the Cato Institute, which is the libertarian think tank here in D.C. We know, um, we know about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a libertarian. Um, it was a wonderful place to work. I consider myself a pretty middle of the road liberal Democrat in the British sense, right? So I, I, I'm not a libertarian. But one of the things that I, I really appreciated there that I sort of learned from my colleagues was this notion that America um, can be a force for good in the world, even if it's only through example. Um, so, you know, this has kind of shaped the way that I think about democracy promotion, about nation building, um, you know, that yes, America has an interest in trying to see democracy spread abroad to some extent. It's good for people around the world, if that's the case. Um, but if you look at our track record, we've done a very, very poor job of trying to, um, you know, spread democracy by the sword. Um, and, and if you, you think about sort of core libertarian ideals, um, the fatal conceit plays a big role, right? The idea that, um, you know, the US government just doesn't know enough about other countries to go and nation build overseas. Um, you know, if we can't do these things at home, how can we possibly imagine that we can govern another country? Um, and so, you know, I, I find that to be a really accurate view of how our sort of activist democracy promotion has gone in recent years. And I think it shares a lot in common with um, some of the smarter progressive takes on democracy and foreign policy about, you know, international solidarity with democracy movements. Um, and that there are a lot of other ways, you know, more sort of passive or low level ways that we can help activists, human rights activists in other countries, um, you know, USAID programs, various NGOs here in, in Washington and elsewhere. I think there's a lot of ways that we can do that. And what I, I firmly believe is that our focus over the last couple of decades on the military tool to try and spread democracy has fundamentally undermined those more passive ways that we might spread but, democracy. But isn't it true that like if we look historically at democracy promotion efforts, I mean, most of them 
haven't been by the sword. If you look at the, um, especially the late 80s, um, early 90s, after an unfortunately tragic record of supporting right-wing autocrats in Latin America, we started to put pressure on a number of regimes, um, most famously, obviously, Chile, uh, also Brazil, um, but also, you know, other examples like the Philippines, South Korea, um, Guatemala, so on and so forth at, at different periods. And um, there is a history there of using pressure without resort to the uh, to military force. And I, I just I feel like the prism gets distorted because the most prominent cases are ones like Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya. Obviously, the debate around Syria and uh, intervention in Syria was a big one over the past decade. And we forget that there's a lot of cases that don't get as much attention now because no one cares about Latin America anymore. Um, and people have sort of moved on. They forgot that a, a lot of um, East Asia used to be, you know, a little bit more, <laughs> quite a bit more autocratic. But there were these cases where the U.S. actually played a constructive role. It was maybe too little too late or just maybe too late and not necessarily too little. But the fact that the U.S. was able to adjust itself shows that we can learn from our mistakes and we can actually get better over time. So when we get into, the, into this broader conversation about optimism versus pessimism, I believe America is not doomed to repeating the same mistakes endlessly, which we have done in the Middle East. But I think that the cases of Latin America and Asia and also some parts of Africa show that the U.S. is able to improve, right? I agree that there were those cases and that they were somewhat successful. Um, what I think we're, we're overlooking here, though, is that they took a very long time. You know, the, for example, the progress of South Korea towards democratization, that was four decades um, you know, and the same goes for a lot of those dictatorships in Latin America. It was a gradual, imperfect process. U.S. pressure maybe helped a bit, but in several of those cases, we weren't even particularly applying pressure. We were just acting as that example that helped to push people in those countries to try and reform from, from the inside. Um, and and I, I agree with you that what we've been doing in the last couple of decades has been an aberration, right? It has been distinct from a lot of the other ways that we have talked about democracy and, and acted around the world for human rights, um, you know, in, in American history. The problem is, I think, you know, today that we are starting from a place where that is our recent history, where if you say to any person on the street in any country, you know, what do you think of US democracy promotion? What they think about is Iraq, and they think about Libya, and they think about Syria. And the point is that those countries, um, the, the countries that we would like to see democratic improvement in, we have actually ended up causing a lot of these regimes to draw in on themselves in fear, right? So if you look at North Korea developing nuclear weapons, for example, um, you know, these are attempts to provide regime security. If you look at the way the Russian government has been acting in recent years, um, a lot of this is driven by fear of the color revolutions that swept Eastern Europe. And so, you know, the ways in which we have tried to promote democracy in recent years are making it harder now for us to use those passive means to try and improve things. And I think it's going to just be a matter of time before those kind of strategies are actually successful again. So, so this is super, super interesting. You know, I, and it's, I, I, I think a, a good pivot to 
take us into this other question I have about about a lot of this stuff. Um, I haven't yet read Stephen Wertheim's book. I've I've read a few reviews and I've 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 seen a few interviews. Um, but one of the things that ends up I think cropping up, and I again I'm I you know I I don't I don't I don't think you necessarily or maybe you do believe this, but it's it's that you know. Part of the the realist critique of the Cold War also ends up being that the Cold War was, you know, prosecuted in an incorrect sort of way, ultimately, that or a wasteful way. People point to it. Vietnam as one of these because of, you know, misapprehensions about things. Um, but there's also something, I think, to be said about, you know, American messianism that I think, you know, sustains America throughout the Cold War and actually leads to a certain kind of success in all of this stuff. I mean, it's it's that 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 Bismarck quote, you know, drunks, fools in the United States of America. There's something that just sort of, you know, I don't know, it, it seems to work out for this country despite despite what what any uh, of us, you know, uh, far seeing people may 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 sort of uh, uh think is is the right course so i guess i guess the 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 question is to me um is about the sort of the limits of the realist critique because i again as i said i'm i'm very sympathetic to everything you're coming uh from on everything we've discussed so far um and especially on this democracy promotion stuff i thought that's that's really interesting but but then you know looking forward to it and I'm latching on to the, that very last thing you said about, you know, uh, behavior of the Russians and the North Koreans and uh, what you alluded to earlier, the Morgenthau empathy thing. Uh, you know, we should we should see how our behavior uh, causes this kind of insecurity and instability and sort of account for it. It's always struck me that the realist point on that is, uh, I won't say overly pessimistic, but I think it misses something important about the nature of, of politics and about the nature of how how the world works in a way, in the sense that it's, it's, it sort of excerpts America as a, uh, as an actor in its own right. And that, you know, being the predominant force, you know, forces all sorts of changes in the world. And that if we, there's a, there seems to be an underlying assumption sometimes in all of this, partly in how sometimes realists talk about the Cold War, partly in how sometimes realists criticize America and the world today, is that if only America were more restrained, more, uh, uh, careful in how it approaches things and more sort of cognizant of these things. And therefore, maybe if America stayed more in its lane, a more stable equilibrium would emerge. And at least from where I'm sitting, I'm not sure that's borne out by facts that, that you know, there is this equilibrium to be, to be, to be grasped there. I mean, I, I really would like to talk about Taiwan and China uh, in, the, in the sort of the last part of this, but it's, you know, it's just sort of like a, you know, a heads up. But I don't know, how would you react to, to any of that that I just sort of threw out there? I, I'll admit I have not yet had time to read Stephen's book either, so uh, that's on me. Um, but, you know, I think based on hearing him sort of talk about this before and, and you know, just sort of understanding where he's coming from, um, you know, he is talking very much about the idea of American exceptionalism and about the idea that American foreign policy elites during the 20th century built on that notion of American exceptionalism to build the idea that America has an exceptional role to play in the world. So I I think, frankly, the quote that sums up American foreign policy, um, certainly in the post-Cold War period, the best was Madeleine Albright um, in the the mid-90s. And she said, you know, America is the indispensable nation. We stand taller than others and we see further into the future. 
Um, and, and at the risk of um, angering your listeners, I mean, that's total bunk. Right. No, no, no. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. That's that's one of my 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 bet noir quotes. So go on. America is exceptional in many ways. It's an awesome place. I love it. I became an American citizen because I love it. Um, but it is not a unique actor on the world stage, or rather, it's only a unique actor in the amount of power that it can bring to bear and in the level of natural security that it enjoys. America is effectively a nation as a continent, and this has given it so much security over the years that it has been able to basically parlay that into a situation where, you know, even today with a, a rising China and a Russia that's pushing back more and a lot of other countries out there, there is really no country that could challenge the U.S., for global hegemony. You know, even in the case of China, we're basically talking about Asia and what's going on in Asia. So uh, America is exceptional in those ways, but I tend to, um, and, and I think this is just sort of my, my upbringing. I grew up in the United Kingdom. Um, I grew up there in the post-imperial era, you know, in Glasgow, a city that had once, you know, built the ships of the British Empire. Um, and, you know, there's something to coming from a country that used to be a globe-spanning hegemon and is now a, uh, you know, moderately important small island that's a financial power, I think to make you look at the way Americans approach foreign policy and say, you know, it's probably not always going to be this way. And so my chief concern when I look at American foreign policy today, and, and this is why I think of myself as a realist, is my chief concern is not about reshaping the world into some new image using American power. It's about how we avoid overextending ourselves so that we continue to preserve the sort of security and prosperity that Americans have come to enjoy. Okay, okay. I do have a contrarian sensibility, so I was almost tempted to offer a retort about the Madeleine Albright quote and perhaps interpret it in a more positive light, but I find myself unable to do so. Yeah, don't. I don't remember that particular quote. Uh, I remember really? some of the others. Oh, my God. The Indispensable a... Nation, for sure, but not like the seeing into the oh, future yeah, further. Yeah, I, I yeah, forgot horrific, about that like, horrific, addendum yeah. to it. That I cannot get behind because I don't think it's true. Um, I also thought maybe you'd mentioned the classic Albright quote. I think it's her, unless it's like apocryphal. No, I think it's true. It's like if you have like a wonderful, shiny military, to call it, it seems like yeah. such a tragedy not to like use it. Yeah. Um, which I probably could defend if I had to, <laughs> but I won't because it's probably not popular. Um, but, um, so I'm not going to defend that, but I do want to push back a little bit on this notion that the U.S. is not a unique actor on the world stage. Um, you, you did mention a couple of ways that it is unique, but I, but that have to do with the power differential and the fact that America has so much going forward in terms of the resources it can bring to bear in foreign policy. But I don't think that alone can explain. So let's say China becomes a su the superpower um, in 50 years. And sort of eclipses the U.S. for for a variety of reasons. And I just obviously China is not going to be including democracy or human rights in its conception of the world order. Even if we look at other like minded Western democracies like France or Britain, they are much more traditional in their conception of their national security interests abroad. The French don't have a big problem 
with not only indulging autocrats, because we indulge autocrats in the Middle East too, but we feel bad about it. We at least have a pretense that we should be better. And that's why we can critique our leaders and say, you're not living up to your own rhetoric, which is what many of us did with Obama. We said, you have this nice rhetoric around democracy in the Arab Spring, but you're doing the near opposite. The French don't give a shit. They'll, they'll fet CC, which they just did in giving him the, the Legion of Honor award and, you know, invite, you know, inviting him and all that. Uh, Macron makes no bones about indulging the worst autocrats in the Middle East, despite France being a democracy at home, however flawed it might be. We won't get into that. Um, Britain is pretty comfortable in, you know, indulging autocrats and weapon sales and all this stuff. And it doesn't even pretend that it feels bad about it most of the time. So I think there is something different about the U.S. here. And I would even go maybe one step further, and maybe this will be ill-advised and I'll regret it afterwards, but, you know, we're already like 40 minutes into the conversation. So, I mean, I don't think my enemies will have gotten this far into it. But um, I do think there's an argument to be made that America is the most just empire in world history, in terms of the conduct of its foreign policy. I won't say more. I'll just let <laughs> Mike drop the most just empire. Go on, Emma, if you like. I, I can also add stuff, but go on. You might be right. Um, I, I mean, I think Patrick Porter puts it really well in his book. He basically points out that, you know, the, the liberal international order that everybody's been talking about, you know, wasn't really liberal, um, you know, was confined largely to the Western world. But he, he does make this point that, yeah, American hegemony, American global hegemony has been among the freest and most open um, hegemonic orders that we've seen in history, in, in history. But it's still not, uh, you know, just benevolent, right? The U.S. is getting something out of it, and it has not always been that benevolent liberal order that we think of. Um, so even though I'd say it's probably better than a lot of the others, that still doesn't mean it's great. Um, and, and again, it's sort of at the risk of, of just putting too fine a point on this. You say, well, at least the U.S. feels bad about its hypocrisy. Um, I'm really not sure that we do. We sell arms to a lot of states that turn around and then use them on their people. Egypt that we were talking about just a few minutes ago among them. Um, we continue to sell cluster munitions to the Saudis until two weeks ago. We were helping them to prop up a famine in Yemen. And you're implying, I guess, that the fact that we might feel bad about it somehow makes that better. It's not clear to me that that's the case at all. American foreign policy has its share of hypocrisy. Um, you know, the foreign policy of all great powers do, does. Um, but I don't think that we're in some way exceptionally good in that regard. I mean, to be to be to be fair on that point, right? I mean, it's the fact that we've stopped selling cluster munitions proves Shadi's point a little bit, right? I mean, that that like you know, I mean, that you get an administration that comes in and sort of corrects on these sorts of things. But 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 you know, not to to. I, I, it's, it's interesting. One thing that, 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 that I want to sort of get back to is, is it struck me you said, you know, uh, coming from the United Kingdom and from Scotland that, that, you know, part of your sensibility, uh, you seem to have indicated sort of informed by, by, by that and that's, that sort of worry about being able to preserve what's, what's good about America. I can tell you, I, I come from the Balkans and it's my, my, my own inclinations and are, are definitely shaped by, you know, the 1990s over there. Um, and, and as a result, there's nothing more horrific to me than America's 
really stupid missteps, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, because they seemed they seemed even at the time, but especially since then, as such unforced errors, really driven by a kind of optimistic ideology about the possibility of change. Um, so, I mean, I, I hear you on that, but maybe the, the place where I'd, I'd maybe push you a little bit on this is that the, the, the fascinating thing about the history of the Cold War, to get back to it, and the fascinating thing about America going forward is that it's, it's a weirdly ahistorical place, that, that Americans are, are constantly sort of pathologically forward-leaning and future-oriented and, and an optimistic people, which, which creates a kind of dynamism, uh, certainly economically, uh, certainly in, in, in societal dynamism, but I think it also creates a kind of this like recklessness in foreign policy that nevertheless is balanced by the, this vitality in America. And I, I sometimes wonder to myself, and I, I do want to talk about China a little bit, is that, you know, I, I, as a pessimist, as someone who tries to say and like, well, you know, America is perhaps relatively declining to China, though that's a, a difficult thing to, to measure. Um, and, you know, a lot of these articles that are coming out now saying that great power competition as a paradigm is, is not, uh, you know, well uh, suited to actually describing the reality of how we should be dealing with China. And underlying that is a sense that there's a certain kind of accommodation that's necessary uh, because China's rise is inevitable and the rest of this. I guess, I guess my, my, my question is, is, isn't realism missing something? Or never mind realism or like this, this question of American restraint. Isn't it missing? something about uh, the the I don't want to say positive externalities because that's too glib and 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 but the the importance of maybe just blocking China and therefore you know taking a principled stand on say Taiwan or you know being obstructionist to China's rise because of all these sorts of I don't know I'd almost say uh, I don't know, ideologically epiphenomenal questions about democracy, that this still leads to a certain kind of strength to America on a foreign policy, on a geostrategic level, that tapping into this, even as geostrategists, as we're trying to be sort of analytical about it, we need to account for this as a source of strength and then try and craft strategy around it, incorporating it, rather than, you know, uh, fretting over the fact that it gets us into bad situations. I don't know, does that make sense, guys? Does that? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Another way of putting this is, does restraint empower China? So that I, I sometimes feel like with, with realist types, a lot of the burden of good behavior is placed on America. And it's like if only America was less confrontational, then Russia would be better behaving and China would be better behaving. But I mean, what I've seen from these two regimes is um, no no good faith, no intent to play a constructive role. And I worry that if we promote the restraint idea and it, it um, gains traction in American public debate, China will end up having more room for maneuver. So it's kind of interesting that you should bring this up on, on China, actually, because I, I had a paper come out last week that's the first um, in our uh, series of papers testing the assumptions of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, and the assumption that I, I look at in this paper is the idea that we're headed for a more dangerous world because Russia and China 
are these aggressive, um, assertive, revisionist states that are dead set on undermining the status quo, uh, overturning the U.S. as hegemon and rewriting world order in their in their shape. And this is basically an idea that you see throughout strategic writings in, in Washington over the last few years. Everything from the national security strategy under the Trump administration to basically every other article in foreign affairs on, on great power competition. You see this notion that China and Russia are, are revisionists. And, and so what I get into in the paper is, um, you know, revisionism is, is definitely a thing. It means a state that's challenging the status quo in some way. Um, but the, the vision of it that Washington has is, is very, um, absolutist. It seems to be drawn almost entirely from a picture of Adolf Hitler in 1937, and, and really doesn't consider almost any other historical examples about how states interact over the broader scope of history. Um, and, and this is kind of one of the big debates of IR, right, is was Hitler unique or, or do we have to worry about something like that all the time? But with the case of Russia and China, you know, we have adopted approach an approach to both states that is effectively 100% military deterrence and signaling, right? So we are going to resist them, push them back, Back, encircle them with military forces, um, and that should cause them to back down. Um, and, the, and the big problem with that is that's that's what's known in international relations as the deterrence theory of, of war. Um, so the idea being that you have to deter other states, you have to deter the Chinese from even trying to do anything on Taiwan, or you know you'll you'll end up in a conflict. The problem is that the deterrence theory is only one of the two big theories about how wars happen. And there's another one, and it's called the spiral model. Um, and that's the idea that states get insecure and worried about their own security. They see military buildups along their border from other forces. They build up their own forces in response. And pretty soon you've spiraled down into a conflict. Um, and, and one of the core tensions in international relations theory, as, as, the, as the theorist Bob Jervis put it, is the fact that the things that you do if you're trying to deter other states from war in this way, are exactly the things that would make them worry if we're actually in a world where it's the spiral insecurity model. And so most realists and most people on the restraint side of the aisle are worried that that's the case. They're worried that if we push back too strongly against China. We reinforce our military in Asia more. We do more freedom of navigation exercises. We do more military exercises with China's neighbors. That what we're going to end up doing is spiraling down into a conflict instead of actually deterring them. Um, and and to, sort of to your to your point, Amir, about the the where we maybe we're missing the positive externalities of pushing back on China and blocking China's rise. Um, I'd say that, you know, you, you might well be right. There probably are positive externalities to it if we make it work. But the negative externality, if we don't make it work, could be another world war between two nuclear powers. And I think that's a possibility we have to take very seriously. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, let me. Pr I'm just trying to think about the best way. If you want to, if you want to think, I no. mean, go on. <laughs> if you've got, go ahead. Don't try. <laughs> go on, Shadi. I think, was about think to in real offer time. a very profound thought. No, I think that um, isn't it true though that we indulged China for quite some time with this with this idea, which was quite prevalent for for many years that we could integrate China into the liberal world order, that they could be a constructive actor, that if we provide these economic incentives and increased trade, 
that there is this naive faith that China would not be a revisionist power. And I think that, I think you're, I would be more on board with your argument if I felt that we had a confrontational strategy towards China for the entirety of the last 30 years, but it's simply not true. We did try the more cooperative approach. And I think that while a lot of us felt like we got burned on China, um, and it's not so important for me because I don't, you know, focus on China, but China hands who had previously been much more in this kind of dovish camp, they feel some of them have come out and said this, you know, rather explicitly that some of their assumptions about China and its willingness to integrate and to be a, a constructive actor were simply proven wrong, that um, China was not willing um, to kind of play along. And now we're seeing the darker side. I think Russia, too, you can make a similar argument that there was a real attempt to um, to decrease tensions with Russia through the reset, for example, and to find new ways to develop different partnerships with with Russia on mutual interests. That didn't work out. So didn't we try this? You know, I, I disagree with you on the Russia question, but maybe we should just bracket that because I think the Russia, I think Russia and China are quite different in this context. So let's bracket Russia um, and, and talk about China. So you're right. This was the approach in D.C. for the last couple of decades. Actually, there's some, you know, you can go back and find our old friend Madeleine Albright again, talking about how <laughs> goals get China to be a responsible partner in the liberal international order, how, how we're supposed to, you know, get them folded into this order as they rise, and then we won't have any problems with them. Um, and I, I'd say, you know, I mean, obviously, that approach has not worked. The problem with that approach was the assumption that it would be on our terms, right? That China would rise as a power, would become more um, influential, its markets would grow, it would build up a military, and that it would be content for everything to stay the way that it was when it was still a fairly weak power. Um, and so I think that was kind of the fatal flaw of that approach to China. Um, but what I, I don't think that necessarily means is that we have taken a conciliatory approach towards China necessarily in recent years. We have still um, enjoyed basically military hegemony in Asia over the last couple of decades. We still have tens of thousands of troops um, in China's neighbors. We still engage in, as I say, freedom of navigation operations and, and a lot of sort of military buildup where even where we were engaged in this sort of trading with China and trying to fold them into the international economic system, we never um, gave up on the idea that basically China would be a junior partner in this. And, and what has happened is that China, like all rising powers, has concerns about prestige and status and its place on the world stage, and it wants to reshape things. The, the real question is the extent to which it wants to reshape them. We act right now as if China intends to basically throw the United States down off its throne um, and take its place, when what it could be is just that China wants a slightly more equitable international system, international organizations where it has a larger voting block, um, a region or a sphere of influence surrounding its borders. You know, so there is a there's a world of difference between China not wanting any changes, which is what we assumed in the, in the 1990s, and the assumption that we've gone to today, which is China wants everything to change. But should should regimes that um, 
are extremely authoritarian and commit some, you know, genocide against a minority population, should they be allowed a sphere of influence? I think I take what you're saying, but why should China be allowed that room for maneuver, that greater role in international organizations, considering that they like killing their own citizens? Well, and 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 let me just add on top of that. Here, here's here's. Honestly, this is where Shadi and I differ so much. I mean, that, that, that element of it, I mean, China's abhorrent and the rest of this. I don't think that for me actually rises to the level of justification against it. My, my, my question ends up being, uh, one of, and this is where I think the, the question of, uh, perhaps the blind spot of realism that sort of maybe keeps me from ever self-identifying as a realist on these sorts of things is, 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 um, it really boils down to the, say, the question of Taiwan at this point. Uh, whether Taiwan is a legitimate, you know, sphere of influence for China or not, I think that's something that that ends up being a, a something that I think most realists would say that that you know, uh, look at the look at the military balance, look at how fast China is rising, look at uh, what we're able to do given that they're what a hundred miles off the coast. And the, the outlying islands are literally visible, uh, from, from the Chinese mainland. Uh, what's, what's, what's likely what's possible. And yet, and yet I think the, the, the blind spot there ends up being, uh, you know, if, if we're, if we're a priori conceding this, what are the costs of that? And, and I, I think that somehow gets lost in, in, in sort of the, the realist approach to it. And in the sense that, that perhaps it maybe hastens certain sorts of, uh, uh, trend lines that I think are correctly identified about the sort of rising and, and falling powers in relative terms. I mean, I guess, I guess the, 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 the question is, um, are, given, given, you know, you bracketed Russia earlier. I think that the interesting thing about Ukraine was the question of the escalatory spiral. I think realist critiques would say, no, we couldn't arm Ukraine because it risks going into a, a larger sort of conflict. Turns out that, that the Trump administration in its sort of, you know, because the president was generally, you know, not disposed to thinking things through very, very carefully, um, went ahead and did it. And, and we didn't get actually a conflict. They backed down. So, so the question is, 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 is there, do you, do you see this as a, as a weakness generally? I mean, uh, react to Shadi's humanitarian concerns as well, but is there a weakness there in realism that it, it has a blind spot about, about the, again, the externalities, the positive externalities of leveraging American might, uh, for, you know, again, sort of coercing this sort of stuff? Well, I'm, I'm deeply sort of troubled by the notion that it is, America that allows other countries to do things, right? The, the notion that it is an American choice what China is going to do, or it is an American choice, um, you know, what behavior Iran is going to pursue. Now, we can try and shape the behavior of other states. We, we have a lot of power. We have a lot of tools in the foreign policy toolkit. We can try and shape that, but we cannot dictate what other countries do in foreign policy. There are things that we, we cannot do and we cannot achieve. Um, and, you know, in terms of realist thinkers, um, you know, I, 
a lot of realists are sort of neo-realists. Um, I tend myself more towards the classical realists, people like Morgenthau, people like E.H. Carr, who go all the way back to, to sort of the, the debacle of, of the, the First World War. Um, and, and, you know, Morgenthau basically talks about the morality of policymakers um, and why policymakers need to take a, a realist view of the world and need to consider the national interest Um even if there are things that they think are wrong. So, you know, the question of what China does to its own citizens, for example, Morgenthau would argue that while we or while policymakers personally might deplore the treatment of minorities in China, we might think it's morally wrong. Um, policymakers have a moral obligation to those under their care, to the people living in the United States, not to risk getting them all killed in a nuclear war over those minorities in China, paraphrasing a bit, obviously, here. Um, but that's how I think about this. Realists are not amoral. It's just that they tend to think of morality in terms of, of the national interest. And so, you know, when again, you say that there might be positive externalities to, you know, resisting China on Taiwan or, you know, sending troops into Ukraine, for example, I agree with you. I think we got very lucky um, with the fact that we um, armed Ukraine and there wasn't more of a, a spiral during the Trump administration. Um, but we need to consider that when we do these things, there is the risk that things will escalate, that it will end up turning into a conflict and that that will end up hurting American citizens more. And that I, I believe firmly that that should be the first care of, of policymakers. And, and just to sort of conclude a bit on Taiwan, um, I, lest you think that I'm suggesting that we just throw up our hands and abandon Taiwan, that's not what most realists or restrainers would, would argue. There are many ways to defend Taiwan. Um, there are some really good strategy documents and force posture documents out there from places like RAND, for example, that show that we could help to provide Taiwan with the arms they need to, if not prevent a Chinese invasion entirely to at least make it so costly as to make the, the Chinese think twice. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of options between, you know, sending in the Navy to try and protect Taiwan and doing absolutely nothing. And that's where we should be having the conversation. So we're coming up on a little bit over an hour. So I think we're going to have to wrap up. Unfortunately, I've, I mean, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, I have a lot of lot more questions. I wish I could ask Emma, but maybe we'll save that for um, part two at some point, a yeah. future episode. Um, and uh, so we will we will um, have a link in the show notes uh, to Emma's paper on China, um, which I confess I have not read, but I'm sure is very interesting. And encourage our readers to take a look at that and to check her out on Twitter where I think she's still active <laughs> for better, right? Are you, Emma? Yeah, I, I am, yes. Okay. Admittedly, pandemic and two small children mean that <laughs> most of my tweets are, are fired off very fast. Without Great. So all the more reason to follow her at Emma M, which I guess is her middle name, Ashford <laughs> on <laughs> Twitter. And um, so I'll just say, too, that like reflecting on this conversation, this was very meaty and it provides an interesting contrast to the last episode where I went on rather long digressions on why I hate dogs. 
and um, my high school years where I was kind of like a pseudo Republican to piss off people at the lunch table in my liberal suburban town outside of Philadelphia. So I hope that you guys, you know, so we have shifted. This is this is quite different than that. Um, and I will also use this opportunity because we didn't do the marketing pitch earlier that um, you guys um, are growing community of listeners do consider uh, becoming a subscriber to wisdom of crowds to get extra paid content um, both, you know, written stuff and also our bonus episodes. Uh, we'll probably do a bonus episode in the next day or two where D- Demir and I, say very unfiltered things for a smaller audience that we might get fired for 30 years from now when Demir becomes national security advisor and I'm his deputy because he is the future Kissinger of our generation who is also a great realist. Well, we didn't actually talk about that. Not at all. What are her feelings about um, Kissinger, but we can again save that for another time. But if you would like to subscribe to Wisdom of Crowds, um, please consider going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and uh, to get that extra content. And thanks for listening. And thank you, Emma, for joining us. Emma, this was this was great. Like really, really, really just terrific. Uh, just awesome. Thanks really for coming. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for good to talk to you guys. Yeah, excellent. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, bye-bye.